welcome to the Birth Activists podcast, hosted by me, Becky Scott, and fellow doula and activist, Samantha Gadsden. Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of the Birth Activist podcast. I have two lovely ladies with me today, Samantha Gadsden and Michelle Horshi. Good morning, lovely ladies. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> I think it's well actually it's afternoon isn't it but to be honest I haven't quite woken up today so there we go. Uh, Today Michelle you've joined us to have a little chat about MVPs, Maternity Voice Partnerships. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about why you're sort of interested and what got you involved in, in MVPs? So originally I was involved because at the time I was raising a complaint with my local trust um, and I'd actually transferred my care from them at something like 37 weeks to a neighbouring trust Mm -hmm. and once I'd had the baby I went back and saw a consultant midwife and said you know I want to raise a complaint da 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 and at the time, my sister, who was working with the health visitors, had said to me, oh, there's this new committee, maternity committee forming. I've seen some um, leaflets about it. You should join it. And so I spoke to the consultant midwife about it, and she had also seen the leaflets and was going. So she said, well, I'm going. Why don't you go as well? And I thought, well, that's good. I know somebody that's going to this committee. Yeah. So I went to the launch event. And that's how I became involved at the time. Didn't know anything about, it was an MSLC at the time. Um, and apparently there had previously been an MSLC at the trust. Um, not sure what had happened, but I think it had dwindled out, dwindled out and this was like a relaunch. So that's how I became involved. Yeah, so originally we had the um, MSLCs, the Maternity Service Liaison Committee, I think that's right, mm-hmm. um, which were acted as uh, almost like a, a bridge, I guess, between service users and the trusts uh, with a view to, you know, looking at things that were potentially needed um, developing and improving in, in the trust. Is that right? Yeah. So and this was the, an MSLC that I'd joined. Yeah, yeah. And then um, they then across the country turned into MVPs, Maternity Voice Partnerships. And I joined um, our local one just as the MVP was sort of coming into play. They were um, advertising for uh, a chair and a vice chair, and they had funds to, to pay for that, which obviously the MSLC previous to that, it was all based on voluntary work, wasn't it? Yeah, but I think that MSLCs were heavily linked with the NCT. And the NCT used to advertise the chair posts through its own network. So Uh, I know that a lot of um, MSLCs were chaired by NCT antenatal teachers. Right. Okay. Okay. And there's obviously that that collaboration isn't there anymore with the MVPs. Well, no. And and also, because MSLCs was pushing for funding... I heard that because NCT was associated with white privileged people, that NHS England couldn't be seen to be, you know, prioritising that or funding that. So they reformed to MVPs. But actually, 
a lot of the original people that was involved with MSLCs were still very much heading, leading. Yeah. And, you know, MVPs and actually have gone on to lead National Maternity Voices. They just yes. sat down as chaired and then formed National Maternity Voices. Yeah. And so they're supposed a- to be, in both of their guises, they are supposed to be service user voice representation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and the point, that was the fundamental yeah. purpose of them. And in Wales, they were never a statutory requirement either. No. Do you, so do you have MVPs to stand in Wales? or Not exactly. No. No. We have things that are set up by the individual trusts, but we don't have the same statutory requirements for them. Right. OK. So um, I know you know quite a bit about um, MVPs, Michelle. Could you just sort of tell us sort of how it's structured in terms of um, I know you've got your national MVP group. How, how, is, how does it function? I'm, not, I'm no expert. I can only tell you what I've seen through my own observations of being, first of all, a service user representative on the committee, then a vice chair. Um, and as part of that, I was in the Facebook group um, MSLC and MVPs, chairs and service user reps. So was I'm I? Group. Yeah, so was you, Sam. So were a lot of us. Was being an opposite word. Yeah. So what I observed by being in that group is that a few of the former chairs decided to get together they self-appointed, you know, self-appointed people. They wasn't elected from the MVP chairs. They came together. Apparently, there was a discussion had with NHS England and National Maternity Voices was formed and MVPs were formed. However, this discussion seemed to have took place behind closed doors and there was never any meeting minutes shared within the group. But NMV was formed. So basically a group of self-elected people that had been former chairs, all, I believe, have ties with NCT or were NCT breastfeeding counsellors, antenatal teachers. So they decided to be national maternity voices and work with NHS England to represent all the MVP chairs across the country. Right. However, the MVP chairs did not vote these people in to represent yeah. them. Okay, yeah. so these, this is a self-appointed body um, who very much held discussions behind closed doors. They wasn't really transparent in what they was doing. So a lot of um, MVP chairs perhaps are not really aware of how NMV came about they just slowly formed and slowly emerged and was working with NHS England um, to represent MVPs yeah and then you've got the obviously the the local MVP groups which um, correct me if I'm wrong you've either got one per trust or one per area area excuse me uh, in our area, we have one MVP that covers the two trusts in our county. So I think it's quite similar across the board, isn't it, in, in the UK? Yeah, yeah. You, you're supposed to have one per trust, I believe. Or, um, I mean, in London, it's one per borough. So whoever yeah. commissions that service should have an MVP because the commissioners 
fund the MVP. But um, yeah, where we are, we might have several um, trusts and each trust has got an MVP, yeah. So you just, I just wanted to pick up what you said there, Michelle. <clears throat> you said that the commissioners fund the MVPs. Yes, they are supposed to. Okay, so the, the, you're talking about the, is it the CGC? My CCG. Right? CCG, my acronyms are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and they are, um, what are they? Explain to the, to the listeners, what, what are the CCG? They're the cl clinical commissioning group. So they commission the services that are provided in your borough. So okay. they, they commission the maternity services, they commission the health visiting services, and I suppose, you know, yeah, they pay for the services. So are and they linked to the NHS? Well, they, yes, I suppose. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to hound you with these questions. No, I mean, <laughs> the I'm way not my brain is working is, is that, you know, from, from the, what I see in my yeah. experience is very much that a, the, a lot of the MVPs are very... Uh, and lean more towards um, almost uh, the the trusts agenda as opposed to a service user agenda. And I wonder whether that's to do with the fact that it is funded by the CCG. Absolutely, you're hundred percent correct. Yeah. So let's face it. What forget. Becky is politely not saying is yes. that many of them are little personal fiefdoms run by the MVP chairs. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I was trying so, to be polite and, and also just to let the listeners know that those people that aren't really, don't know about MVPs and how they work, just trying to, you know, flesh that out. So it, it's completely transparent. So we know exactly what we're saying. Yes. So most committees, they say, um, in the terms of reference, at least one third of the committee is supposed to be service users. So that still means that two thirds of the committee are the commissioners, are the healthcare professionals, you know. So it's still very much healthcare professional commissioner heavy. Yeah. And and in my experience, you know, the commissioner um, very much made the decisions about the committee like this is an example so our mvp chair service user chair used to be paid 48 days per year to chair the committee at 150 pounds a day because the chairs are supposed to be remunerated at the pp um public and patient voice rate for which is 150 pound a day so she was being remunerated at 48 days per year, which was around £10,000, I think, or something like that. And then the commissioner just decided that it was no longer go going to remunerate the chair that amount. It was going to drop that remuneration to nine days per year. Yeah. So she basically, they basically said, you know, that's what we're going to do. And none of us in the committee, the service users or nobody had any say over that whatsoever. The midwives didn't have any say over it. The commissioners had made that decision. So we... Where was the rest of that money going then that there wasn't being paid to the chair? Well, <laughs> they... So what they'd also decided is to hand over the running of the committee, committee to Health Watch. 
So Healthwatch had put in a bid, I suppose, to um, be responsible for the outreach work via the MVP. Right. But again, it wasn't very transparent. The commissioner hadn't gone out and said, you know, we're looking for organisations to tender for yeah. the responsibility of our MVP of X amount of money. You know, it, there, was that, no, there was no discussion with the committee about the committee. The commission. That's what seems to be the trend in what we're experiencing. Obviously, we've had conversations about this previously, and obviously. Um, it, the, the big thing is that there doesn't seem to be any transparency and there's no real, um, I guess, fair process in, yeah. involved in terms of, like you said, electing chairs or deciding what happens with the, the funding that's available. It, it's, it's almost like, well, you know, we'll, we'll do what we want type thing. Yeah. And I think different MVPs across the country run completely different. There's no... Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that we have different demographics across the country and different things that have, you know, happening in different areas, but there is no... Um, consistency. Yeah, there's no consistency mm. and there's no scrutiny of what's happening mm. at, at individual MVPs across the country. I mean, I've known MVPs to be literally run by the commissioners and chaired by healthcare professionals. Yeah. You know, and this is these, these are being quoted as the um, you know, their their forums for service user service user engagement. When I worked on my national team, on the national team as the service user voice, I was so horrified at every single discussion we had, it was always about we had to work with the MVP. So it, there was no quality assurance of what's happening at each MVP or whether they was diverse or whether they was representative of their local community or or what. It was just you had to work with your MVP. You know, Do you want to know, what, job, want to know what happened down here? Shall I tell what? you? What? One of our trusts, I won't say which one, one of our trusts put out a leaflet about induction and they said, and I quote, that they didn't want to talk about the induction pathway because they were already sure that the induction pathway contained fully informed consent. Do either of you believe that there is a trust anywhere in the UK that is obtaining fully informed consent on induction? No. 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 <laughs> no. Right? So that was an outright lie from the start. And we all know that every trust has got an issue with induction, yeah? There's no trust immune to it. And this trust wasn't immune to it either. So I shared that leaflet everywhere I could think of in our local area. And I suggested that everybody who'd had an uninformed induction one and made their views known in the Facebook group for the trust, yeah? yeah. So do you wanna know what they did? They deleted the whole Facebook group, <laughs> gone. <laughs> the service users didn't agree with them, so they took the group. Yeah, I think, the, I think um, prior to the pandemic, when we were having in-person meetings for the Maternity Voice Partnership, so let's just take that to start with. And, you know, your point, Michelle, that you made that one third of the members um, needed to be service users. And let's think that, you know, not all of the members would actually attend these meetings anyway or all the time. So potentially you've got a room of, say, I don't know, 10 healthcare professionals and maybe one or two service users. And, and that's supposed to be a forum absolutely. that they're able to, to speak up in. 
And let's look at it another way. Every single healthcare professional in any one of those meetings and giving up any of those their time, yeah, is doing it as a part of their paid role. They are yes. all being paid to be there and all of the service users are expected to give up their time, their fuel free. and everything else that goes on for free. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And another thing that we remember is that all the members, those service user members, to really be part of the committee, you're supposed to have had a baby within five years. Yeah. So um, not only have you got to get to these meetings wherever they've been set, sometimes your travel expenses are reimbursed, but... Yeah. It's a really lengthy process. You don't turn up with your parking ticket or, you know, and get a refund. It's a real lengthy process. And when you've got a new baby, you're absolutely Yeah. Yeah. If you ever get it back, if you can really be bothered to, you know, apply for the £2 parking ticket or whatever it is that you've paid. I mean, my local trust, for, for for the women and families that are living in the most deprived areas, for them to get on a bus to some of our meetings at our local trust, they, it will probably take them about three buses. Yeah. You know. And to be fair, they're not going to want to sit in a room with healthcare professionals that are the ones that are, are um, you know, uh, discriminate against them and look down their nose at them and treat them poorly anyway. And that's assuming you could afford to get there and you're not in work because they're yeah. all run around healthcare professionals nine to five working hours. Yeah. yeah. So that's one, one big issue we've day. got there that they're not the the physical in person meetings weren't ex weren't accessible in the first place for people to to attend. So then obviously the pandemic hits and things go online and so there were some I, I imagine I know locally here there were uh, MVPs running online meetings and also people were a bit more active I think in the Facebook groups as well because that sort of became the only forum that they were able to have their say would you and say that's there in your area Michelle's been concerned about speaking for you but you can expand Michelle is the lack of representation of black brown and other minority women Absolutely. I, I find it so shocking how NHS I mean NMV when they formed they was an all-white group and they actually put out a statement saying I think it was like in 2017 or in 2019 we recognized that um we wasn't representative and we we have put out to recruit and we now have two BAME amongst us that was their wording, to BAME amongst us. Oh, God. And again, that was because NHS England was being called out, saying, how can you prioritise this national maternity voices that is a predominantly white organisation? And the yeah. same with MVP groups. You know, I think they did a survey, and it was something like 98% white people, mm. you know. And again, like if you have been discriminated or received poor care based upon the colour of your skin or, you know, what culture you're from, why would you then go and sit in a room with some of those, with the perpetrators? You know, most people I know that have had near-death experiences or, you know, a really terrible time have their baby and run to the hills and never want to come back. Exactly. And what is the incentive? 
them to come back. You know, I've spoke to women who thought, if I, you know, said to me, you know, I can, you know, people give their feedback about their care, but what happens? What happens following that? So they go through all the emotional turmoil of sharing their experience and yeah. re-traumatizing themselves about what happened for what benefit for their self. And they yeah. don't even see a, um, a change in the service. They don't see care being improved. Yeah. So what is the point? You know, what is it's, the point? It's lip service. It, it's, the, it's the trust saying, oh, we well, can complain. Uh, but then there's no there's no sort of guarantee that you're going to get anything. Because I think, people, you know, it's very much, the system's very much set up that it's about uh, monetary um, compensation. And so they're like, well, you could complain, but you probably won't get any money. Um, whereas actually they're sort of assuming that people, all people are interested in is getting money from having a poor situation or bad situation. Whereas actually, you know, I mean, people that I speak to, I said, you know, before you put a complaint in, have a think about what you want to happen as a result of your claim, yeah. uh, your complaint, because that's really, really important. I said, because um, you know, you need to set that expectation with the trust before you even put a complaint in. There's no point wasting your energy, like you were saying, Michelle, you know, pouring their heart out about this situation that they've had. If they don't know, um, if they haven't sort of set that expectation with that person they're complaining to, um, as to what they want to achieve from it. Um, yeah, so yeah. It really, need, yeah, it, it sort of falls on deaf ears otherwise. It's a bit like, well, okay, sorry about that. What do you want me to do about it? Type response. Yeah, yeah. But even say, you know, you know, many women rely on a lot of charitable organisations to go to for support or, you know, to help um, rebuild themselves if they've been traumatised or whatever. Now, MVPs expect these organisations to come to their committee meetings and bring feedback for the community. But again... What, what seems to be, what everybody seems to be forgetting is a lot of these charitable organisations were about long before MVPs, are really well established within their community, are really delivering the goods, are trusted. And many are struggling for funding. They don't know how long they're going to keep going for because they might have a budget that's about to come to an end. You know, they they've got haven't got much resources, but still keep trying to deliver and supporting women and families. You know, that have been abused in the system or have had terrible experiences. Now, why are they expected to use their precious little bit of time? to come away from the families and the work that they're doing, to sit in a meeting, to feed back about what these families and women, um, you know, are experiencing. You know, why aren't NHS England working with these organisations directly? Why do they have to come through this predominantly white organisation to be heard? It's like Chinese whispers Excellent. Yeah. If a committee... If a committee is, say, being funded £10,000 a year to do service, to, you know, to have service using service user engagement, why isn't the CCG looking at the local organisations that are already working with the families 
and saying, you know, we'd like to do some outreach work. We'd like to know what's happening for the people. You know, this is the budget or what would you need to, to give us some really great feedback on how we can return the service, you know, yeah. to improve the services. And in return, those organisations get some funding and hopefully get to see um, an improvement based upon the feedback they've given. Yeah, it almost Excellent. feels like the MVPs have been set up and are in existence just for lip service. <gasps> Did really? I say that? Oh, my God. <laughs> Absolutely. And this is the thing. I, I kind of feel, after being involved in them, I think a lot of the feedback that... I mean, don't forget, you're not supposed to act on individual feedback. You're supposed to listen to lots of feedback and then pick out themes and then use those themes to improve your service so yeah. you do have lots of people giving individual feedback and so you hope to be able to signpost them to the relevant people you know maybe the listening clinic or a, an obstetric um lead if it you know if they've had um poor experience with you know medicalized birth um, but as an MVP, you never hear the you never hear the result because of GDPR. You know, it's personal information. You can't go and say, "Could you tell me what happened with Mrs. Smith who contacted me?" Um, you know, that was traumatized, and they'll say, "Oh, sorry, we can't tell you anything about that because it's confidential." Yeah. So basically, all this feedback comes into the committee. It's swept under the carpet, never to be heard again. Well, yes, and that's even if they let you stay that, Michelle. Let me just tell you, in our local trust during the pandemic, shut off, although they put approvement, approving all comments on, on the Facebook group. They only approved positive comments. They didn't allow any negative stories to be posted on the group. And they turned off all commenting on all posts in the Facebook group. Now, I don't know how that actually equates to voices. Uh, <laughs> it just and seems ridiculous. They kicked doulas out of the group if they didn't yeah. talk to the party line. Oh, they, banned talk, the step. <laughs> they banned talk of free birth. And now I'm generalising because I am going to say that some of our some of our local trusts, not all because I work in six, do actually care about what the service users have to say. Yeah. Right, some, but that doesn't mean that the whole concept is not fundamentally flawed. Yeah, we also have MVP chairs gatekeeping access to heads of midwifery. So yeah. I've suggested the women feedback to heads of midwifery. We can't get the heads of midwifery email address from anywhere. I say go to the MVP, and they're like, "Ooh, the A's with us," and that's not what she's asking. That woman has asked for the email address for the heads of midwifery. Yeah. It shouldn't be that hard to find. Again, so is is this? You know, we was talking about the be benefits of being part of an MVP and doulas and people were saying, you know, it helped me to understand the workings of the system and who's who in the system. And perhaps if I need to bring a woman in um, who's having a difficult time, I might know the best person to go to. But listen, if an MVP is doing its work well, this shouldn't be private information. I, as work that I did I wanted to make sure that everybody that walked into maternity or looked on our website knew who is who in maternity 
Yeah. It shouldn't just yeah. be for the select few. Anybody accessing services yeah. should know who is who in maternity. It should be transparent, all their contact details, you know, how to escalate a concern, how to escalate a complaint. You know, if you're not happy with the person that you're receiving care from, you can go, oh, well, that's the next person in line or that's another member of the team. Why, why is it that only if you go for your MVP do you find out this information? Yeah. Again, we go back to it for the fact that it's just not transparent. I mean, local in our trust, they refuse to give out certain... Uh, one of our trusts is very good at giving out you know, the infographics, the monthly infographics that tell you their stats, basically. Uh, the other one refuses to do it. Uh, apparently, they, they don't have a requirement to do it. And if anyone wants to see it, there's one up in, uh, stuck up on the wall in the Labour wards, like we're all allowed in there. Um, and that if we want to have that information, we need to do a freedom of information request. Mind you, if I was a trust, I wouldn't want to stick those infographics outside, would no, you? Exactly, exactly. But, you know, they do have to be transparent, don't, don't they? Because I think that's generally, it's like the whole thing of, you know, we're not moaning about what you're doing necessarily. It's the fact that you're, you're not giving that person the choice to, to do that in terms of I'm thinking of birth now you know when we when we support people we're supporting their choice we're not saying we're anti-cesarean or we're anti-induction we're supporting choice so this is about stop telling us lies and stop hiding the facts from us because we just want to know we're not going to beat you well we might beat you with, with it like a stick but um <laughs> you know it, it people want to know this and the fact that it's being hidden is just raising more suspicion of the trusts and what they're hiding and and it's not really fostering that kind of trust relationship that the service user wants to have with a, a midwife or a doctor no what, no what would you like to see michelle what would you like to see I would like to see NHS England being very transparent about every piece of information. You know, like when you was in that group, um, Sam, Sam <laughs> you know the MP chairs group and people from NHS England would pop information on, oh, we're renewing this guidance and we want to, some feedback. Why, it all, this should be transparent. Any service user should be able to comment on NHS England guidance. Yeah. And every service user should be able to access information. So I'd like to see NHS England have a information page of co-produced information, you know, so working with service users, not necessarily those who choose to be part of an MVP, because also I've seen a lot of service users who are part of the MVP movement get very burnt out or some are abused some are bullied within the system and there is no there's no protection for those service users either you know everybody comes to an MVP you know from a good place willing wanting to help the service but it doesn't always turn out that way and there mm. are lots of MVPs that have got very toxic cultures you know there is bullying there's censoring like you say um so if if a service user wants to generally help to improve um services but doesn't want to be part of an MVP NHS England should have a service user page you know a service user website where there's in you know evidence-based information shared opportunity to feedback any any new information or videos that are posted on there so that doulas can signpost to different yes. um, sources of information and I'd like to see every single trust have a fantastic 
maternity website. Mm. You know, it shouldn't be reliant upon what the MVP put out because many people that are having their baby for the first time are not going to know what an MVP is. They're never going to look for it. They're going to look up their local maternity services and they should be able to access some great information about the different services that are offered, you know, like the birth centre, what it looks like, photos of it, the community team, the diabetes team, you know, diabetic pathways, maternal health, uh, mental health pathways, who's who in maternity. Every trust should have this fantastic page that gives a woman so much information so that she can, you know, access it even when she's planning to have a baby. Um, to start looking at her place of birth, you know, where she might want to give birth, what the benefits are of giving birth in a birth centre, what the benefits are of home birth. And there'd be true unbiased information. And I don't think that information is reliant upon an MVP. No, absolutely. And it would, wouldn't it be easier for that to happen if there was a bit more consistency across all trusts as well? Because, you know, as it stands at the moment, you know, most trusts sort of do what they want in terms of their policies and guidelines. And some of them follow like nice guidelines and others don't, uh, you know, and, and some have got some really good procedures, um, processes in, in one area of maternity and the other area is dire. So there's no kind of um, consistency, really. There's no accountability nationally. So yeah. through my unique position in the home birth group, I get a really, I can't say what's hand, affecting everybody, but I'd say I get a really good handle on what's affecting home birth in women, right? Or women who want to home birth and are being consistently high risk. So I pick up sort of national trends and national patterns through the group that is quite a unique perspective. And I can see that there's no accountability nationally because every trust is allowed to get away with murder so there's a pattern, right? So what will happen is this month's big baby will be flavour of the month. And all of the trusts will be going on about big babies for some reason. And then next month, it might be gestational diabetes. And then it'll be small baby. And then it'll be threatening to refer everybody to social services. But you can see that this is happening nationally, but there's no national accountability. And of course, it might be only one or two examples in each individual trust. But the big picture is these quite clear patterns and trends that are happening across maternity services across Wales, England, Scotland and Northern yeah. Ireland, to be honest. Yeah. And, and at the moment it's uh, that normal birth in, in inverted commas is dangerous. Oh yeah, um, because because forcing people to be induced and then refusing to give them the cesareans is actually normal birth, isn't it? Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> you know what, tonight on uh, Clubhouse we're discussing the difference between vaginal birth and physiological birth. Yeah. So that's yeah. going to be an interesting talk. People use that vaginal birth, uh, normal birth, natural birth, all those intermittently. But there is, you know, there, and physiological birth, obviously, that there's so many different um And you know what? Words. I know the term normal birth of sex people. But actually, if we're going to look at it, really, what is wrong with, oh, I'm pregnant. Oh, there's no complications. Oh, my baby flew out of my vagina. Why is that actually seen? As a bad thing. I know. Rather than being managed. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Yeah, I understand it's not the only type of birth. Obviously, I've been at them all, right? I've been at everything from general anaesthetic cesarean through. But that doesn't mean that we should be striving for a culture in which non-intervention, unless it's necessary, is bad. 
And anyway, the word normal just equates to anything that happens it is the norm. So it's the, the thing that happens in most cases. And as things are at the moment, that is heading very much towards induction and stroke cesarean. Well, it's not as things are. We it are is. now in a situation yeah. where more than 50% of our births are either inductions or planned cesareans. Yeah. And let's not forget that figure would be higher if women didn't accidentally go into labour before somebody could shove a pessary up their vag and induce them. You know, anyway, what Sam, but actually, it's a very important topic because this, um, during the pandemic, when we saw, so MVPs are supposed to be part of the plan to implement better births, right? Yeah. So yeah. we all knew that better births, one of the priorities was to increase birth in midwifery-led settings, okay? Yeah. So that was our ideal, to increase birth in home birth, uh, you know, at home and in midwifery-led units. Yeah. So I found it really bizarre that during the pandemic, many of the birth centres was used as COVID isolation centres. Yeah. The community teams was pulled. Yeah. Despite the World Health Organization putting out guidance saying that in the pandemic, maternity services should be mobilised yeah. and we should be providing maternity care in the community. Yet the trust did completely the opposite. They yeah. pulled the, com the community teams in to staff the hospital. And in doing so, brought healthy, well women and their babies into a place that was full of COVID. You know, yeah. we Which had women is why we saw an COVID. increase in free births and BBAs because and people didn't want to go into a hospital full of COVID. So, so I saw... No... But Sam, Mick, you and I, we all saw and we witnessed women and birthing people in uproar about this. It was a time when we could have flipped the aim for better births. You know, we could have really accelerated it and gone because women were demanding home births. Women were demanding yeah. to be seen in their home. Women didn't want to go into the labour world where you yeah. might have anaesthetists, you know, crossing sight and X amount. So we could have used this to our advantage. But we didn't. We went the opposite way. I didn't see many MVP chairs challenging this. No. Being that they're supposed to represent service users, I don't know many service users who were pregnant at that time that was happy about being pulled into the hospital against yeah. their wishes. All right? And, and being told they got a birth alone, they're not allowed their birth partners, they're not allowed their doulas, you know, or everything that was safe to them made them feel safe. You know, their individual plans for birth was thrown out of the window. And it didn't, it, I really noticed that nobody was really questioning this. And I, you know, you probably saw me in the group, Sam, you know, in the yeah. MVP chairs saying, what are you doing to challenge your trust about this? And at the same time, we saw independent midwives had lost their insurance. Yeah. Now, there was a couple of trusts that was offering bank contracts to independent midwives to help staff the service and ensure that women could have care in the community because they didn't have enough staff, but not enough. So I was raising the question, what are you doing? Are you, are you questioning your trust about this? Are you asking them it, why they're not offering bank contracts to independent midwives why they're not trying to you know facilitate women's wishes to birth at home or in the community away from covid centers and the answer was we're not activists we're not activists we we have to understand the trust we have to work with the trust so we've got this body of people 
that are supposed to be representing service users that at the time when I think service users needed them most, they, yeah. you know, who was yeah. advocating for service users? I didn't see a lot of people challenging this or even raising the fact that, you know, this is this is about implementing better birds. This is what we're supposed to be part of that implementation. So now we need to be saying, right, you know, we can accelerate. Now women are wanting mm. this. They're wanting to birth in the settings. And but, but that, brings us, that brings us full circle to the point that, you know, ultimately those chairs are answerable to the trusts. Even though they, they might want to say, not want to say that, they ultimately are being paid by the trust to do their job. So they don't feel able to stand up for, um, against them. And, you know, obviously throw into that the pandemic when all the poor midwives and healthcare professionals are just run off their feet and obviously risking, risking their own health as well in, in doing so. And people didn't want to question that, which, you know, sort of fair enough. But also, what about these poor women? You've got, you, you know, like you said, the thought of going into labour in a hospital full of ill, sick people with a, a virus that is killing yeah. people and then do that on their own. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. abhorrent, basically. I know but, loads of women. I know loads of women who are still suffering. You yeah. know, first time mothers particularly that, was yeah. petri you know that was so scared about covid anyway really scared then because they was pregnant then being told that they couldn't have the birth they wanted and they had to go in hospital then many of them being recommended induction without actually explaining what that meant and that you know we might start your induction then we might stop it you might be there for five days and then sent into that environment on their own without their partners you know I'm for five days yeah, so they couldn't leave five days or six days or seven days of hell on their own. Then when their babies are born, they are absolutely a distraught, tired, exhausted mess with yeah. this newborn baby. Their partner's still not allowed to come into the hospital. And then they're eventually discharged, not into their normal settings where they can have their mum or their sister or whoever come to their house to help them because many of them and now don't want to be near you because you just come out of hospital. And I know lots of pregnant women who caught COVID in hospital as well, yeah. who are still suffering the fallout from that, that are still and, damaged. And fucking, that. fucking gaslit with this jolly World War II and the ward spirits. Everybody was so happy. They were, do you know why they were happy? Because they were in Stockholm syndrome. They were too scared to tell anybody they were upset. Also, there was this whole... NHS staff are heroes thing going on so they didn't feel like they could say do you know what I'm really sad they have yeah. to sit there and be grateful to people who are holding them captive and I understand this is not how midwives see it but I have spoken to many a woman and I want to be clear here because yes we want to use inclusive language but I truly believe that this happened in maternity services and not in any other branch of medicine okay because it mostly happens and has traditionally happened to women i understand we're moving into a more inclusive language and a more inclusive way of being but we have to look at the historic picture of what got us here and the historic picture of what got us here is no one gives a fucking shit about what happens to women on the maternity wards 
yeah and the nhs is a patriarchal system it is based on on a male way of being isn't it and i so, have spoken to trans and non-binary people who have been given better care in the pandemic than my disabled women clients okay so i have spoken to people who've had midwives come out to their houses because it's uncomfortable for them to go into the hospital environment which is great because that's excellent excellent care but at the same time why are my clients in a wheelchair being hauled into hospital and manhandled by staff that they don't want touching them because they're in a pandemic they're terrified because they already feel mm. vulnerable because they're in wheelchairs they've got complex health needs and they're being passed around from staff to staff and so are their babies it's because right? they I'm know sorry. they can get away with it because it's been done yeah. for years isn't because it? That's the, thing. The, the rights of women with a disability is not fashionable anymore so their rights got stampled on even more than everybody else's in the pandemic. I really, really, truly believe that. The women with a disability that I've spoken to, we've done podcasts with autistic people as well, and they will tell you the same thing. Their rights got even more. So even more, they didn't want to be on their own and even more they were because they didn't have the option of free birthing and home birthing because they just have complex health needs that meant they needed to be in. So they're in without their translators, without their carers, right? without anybody to advocate them. Some of them don't speak any English. They haven't got anybody mm. with them. They're on their own. They've got disabilities. They're completely disadvantaged and they're by themselves in these wards. And where were the MVPs shouting about this? Nowhere. Nowhere, absolutely nowhere. I didn't see enough of it, Sam. I didn't. And, and you know, earlier on, Becky, you mentioned about, um, you know, service users standing up and advocating for other service users or something like that. It is quite, I think you've got to be quite a strong character to feel confident to speak up in those environments. I've yeah. been part of lots of NHS working groups and, uh, you know, and I myself even, even though I'm very kind of, used to that environment now I still have sat in meetings and actually had panic attacks because I thought it's so important that I speak up it's so important that I speak up I've got to say this I've got to say this to the point where it's given me a panic attack to say it because I'm in a room of healthcare professionals that I know are going to push back against what I say like for instance one of the one of the things that used to give me panic attack when I was on the national team is when they talk about shared decision-making, always shared decision-making, in my head, I'd be thinking, I've got to say, it's not shared decision-making, I've got to say, and I'd, and I'd think, right, excuse me, can I just say something? And I'd have a panic attack saying it, but it felt so important to me to raise that point that there is no shared decisions about a woman's body and her vagina, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd say it every single meeting, even though people go, no, Michelle, it's written in NHS guidance, you know, that is the terminology of the NHS. And I'd say, yeah, but it's still wrong. It's yeah. still wrong. Um, and, you know, I think for some service users, it's very intimidating to find your voice in some of the toxic environments. It's not a welcoming environment, is it? it, it whether no, in person or not. online, it's not a it's welcoming not. environment. Yeah. And the thing is, most of the time, you're challenging the status quo. You're saying something that people don't want to hear. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. when I was raising the issues about independent, you know, when I saw um, our home birth 
been our home birth been um, removed as a choice. Yeah. And at some points, I think our birth centre might have closed. Um, no one of our trusts, our birth centre wasn't used. Home birth was, community care was pulled. Um, and I remember saying, but what about raising, you know, what about employing independent midwives? And even that, I could see, I could feel the stares through the screen, like independent midwives. And, and people would say to me, do you realise how unsafe they are? And I used to say, excuse me, can you, can you explain what you mean by unsafe? But, you know, it's, you have to have those difficult discussions. And not many people are perhaps in the right place, particularly if you're, you've just had a baby, perhaps, and you're feeling a bit vulnerable anyway. Because don't forget, most people are... Have, have got a small child under five. Yeah. So you probably yeah, have they turned, um, What I applied to do one of our maternity services liaison committees, they turned me down because I was a doula and I only got in because I had a child under five because I contacted the chair directly because I knew her personally and said they won't let me on. And she was like, what? And she was like, you've got a baby. So as a doula, they didn't want someone who but was going to speak up. But you should be able to join your committee because you're yeah. somebody who's interested in improving maternity services and you are a service user representative. But again, like we've all seen, you do have chairs policing who, who's involved, who's feeding back on the service, you know, who's part of the committee, who's allowed to type what on a page, who's not allowed to type what, yeah. who's allowed to speak up at the committees, who's not, who's involved in... Um, reviewing documents or, you know, I mean, what's your experience, Becky? You've, you've been part of an MVP. We've all Becky been part was, of MVP. Yeah. Becky was horrifically bullied by yeah. her MVP. Oh. And as I said to, to Becky, the local midwives where I live, I've got to give them their dues, wouldn't, wouldn't never entertain speaking to me the way I've seen Becky spoken to by midwives in her local area. Yeah. If, if they spoke to me the way they spoke to Becky, which is why they don't do it, they would have found themselves on the, the receiving end of a formal complaint. And it I have It didn't start complaint. like that, though. It was actually the chair of the MVP that asked me to join. I was a friend of hers and she recognised that it would be a really... And she made she asked me to be the chair and I was like, no way. But I joined <laughs> the MVP and actually she told me she had to argue the, the point of having a doula on the MVP. And... I know. And um, she told me who it was that actually raised the concern. And it was someone that I thought was a friend. And um, yeah, so we won't go there. But um, but I got on there and, you know, I was there for a fair few months before the pandemic hit. And um, but previously I used to work in the NHS. So I used to work at the trust. So some of the healthcare professionals knew me anyway. So I think that was, um, you know, they felt quite comfortable with me being there. If I'd have been a doula that had not worked there, I'm not sure that they would have actually let them in, to be fair. You know, um, go on. and who are they to silence talk of free birth? Who are yeah. they to yeah. decide what type of birth we can and can't talk to in MVP groups? So, so the, the thing that Sam is referring to is, is something that's actually um, spurred uh, me to say to Sam, we need to get a podcast together. It's actually what, the, what birthed the birth activists in that uh, I was getting phone calls from women saying that they'd had uh, been told their home birth was cancelled. 
that um, and uh, I put a post out on my social media to say um, I am available to support people. I am happy to go to a hospital. At that time, we didn't have testing and some people were having to stay at home if they had symptoms. So I, I was like, you know, I'm happy to come to hospital with you if your partner has to stay home. Um, and I'm happy to talk payment terms if you can't afford, you know, to pay me upfront sort of thing. And what I got was a, a barrage basically within the MVP group, as well as on my social media pages from midwives to say that I was um, encouraging free birth exploiting women and uh, undermining midwives and the chair of the MVP at the time uh, was a doula and who someone again who I considered to be a friend and um, they were basically involved in getting rid of me and booting me out uh, told told me it was because I was bullying her although I was just asking for information in the group and that was when all the commenting and everything was getting turned off and everything um, and so, yeah, I was I was booted out uh, out of the MVP group, and um, and that's when basically communication shut down on the whole of the MVP because they weren't prepared to answer the questions that the service users were asking about what was going on, and that sort of feeds back into that whole transparency thing, because um, at the time, it was the midwives were very much um, pulling rank and telling everybody. Uh, no, 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 the home birth service is still running. No, 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 the uh, um, birth centre is still open. No, 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 it's absolutely fine for you to come in. So nothing, people weren't being told what was going on. So not only were they facing going in on their own, um, their partners being left at home, then not having anyone with them when they're birthing, they're, they knew that that things were going on and that things were being closed, but they were being faced with the services publicly saying, no, 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 it's all fine, it's all fine. So they had, you know, if, if, the, if they'd had a different tact perhaps and sort of said, you know, we are having to make changes and we will be, you know, your midwife will be in touch with you to let you know what the, what the deal is basically, then that might've been different, but they, they basically just denied everything. And almost like, you know, turned to me saying, you're lying, the home birth service isn't shut, it's shut two days later, you know, this isn't the problem, you know, people aren't going to birth alone, oh, what happened, they're birthing alone, um, you know, they just, they were just denying it was happening, and uh, blame the doula, let's leave, leave her the scapegoat and just chuck her out and, and boot her, um, but you know, we've got things to be grateful for, because we now have this amazing podcast. <laughs> mm. When did you um... I, I saw exactly the same thing, and I think it's because perhaps we're so we're we've got our ear to the ground. We've yes. got our ear to the ground. We're listening. We we are engaging with service users all the time. We generally have got an interest in their birthing experience, so we can see what's happening. I mean, yes. no matter what birthing group I go in, whether it's home birth, whether it's feedback, whether it's um, induction. I'm seeing the same things and, and people, you know, hospitals and trusts putting out public things. Oh, our home birth service is still on, birth centre is still open, but actually a very different picture for the service users. And I was the same as you. I was raising this at national level and they're saying to me, oh no, but across the country, we, we, we've only got um, 5% or 10% of um, home births stopped. And, you know, these choices are still on offer. And I'm like, they're not. They're not. It's about who shouts the loudest. Yeah. And then, and, and then the privilege 
of I think it was down Kent Way. I can't remember which of the Kentress. You have to have a car. You have to have a spare room. You you know the absolute expectation. What? So only the middle class, financial privileged people who own their own car and have a three four bedroom house can have a home birth now. Yeah. Yeah. Only those with money. I yeah, don't know when exactly. you exactly. I left the MVP chair and service user group at the start of pandemic after I tried to raise with them the amount of women in England, in England, I want to make this really clear, Wales kept home birth running for a much longer time. This was not something I was raising because it was happening in my local area. This is something I was raising because this is what was being fed back to me nationally from people in my groups, the amount of women being threatened with social services. And they tried to shove me back in my little Welsh box. And as I do know all, I haven't got enough time in the day. I was working 23 hours a day at the start of the pandemic trying to help people. Yeah. Um, I've yeah. got enough hours in a day to be dealing with you lot who can't be bothered to help your own service users. Mm. I became less and less engaged with service user organisations or the NHS because they weren't listening. So I just went off on my own and became, I suppose, more radical than I'm much more radical now. But you know what, Sam? You're you're actually making a difference to individuals and you know that, don't you? Yeah. I mean, look yeah. at the overwhelming positive feedback that you are getting. I think when I look back at the amount of years that I've spent involved in MVPs, um, I just think I wished I'd have given my time to a different organisation because mm -hmm. I was voluntary until the pandemic came. And, you know, I then stepped up to chair my committee because there was no committee. So there was nobody challenging the service at the time. There was nobody challenging the decision. So... I kind of stepped up and I got paid. But for seven and a half years, I gave my time voluntary um, to the MVP. I opened my house to service users to come and have tea and coffee and cakes and gather their feedback and feed it back into the service. And now I just think when I look back on that time, what difference did I really make to people in my local community? I don't know, really, because... You make changes and then you turn your back and it's things are back to normal, you know. And this and is then you where... coming in, make trying to make the same changes that you've seen tried to be made five times over, and it just reverts back to as it was. I wish I'd have given my time to other organisations, you know, even birth rights or somebody like that worked on a voluntary basis because I gave a lot of my time really to mm. that, and it was a waste of time. And even earlier on, Sam, you was talking about. Um, you know, Stockholm syndrome and um, midwife saying, oh, women are really happy with the service we're providing. Uh, something that I observed as part of my work with the MVP is that we had to do walk the patch and we would go around the labour wards and the postnatal units literally and speak to women hours after they'd given birth. Sometimes, you know, not many hours at all. <laughs> and ask them about their experience. How was it? You know, was there anything positive? Was there anything negative? Um, you know, and it was all fed back on an anonymous basis. But what I can say is that that feedback, midwives love just doing that, that feedback was always really overwhelmingly positive because you've got women who have just had their babies and they're, and they perhaps would have been through a terrible experience, I don't know, but they're just glad they made it. 
they're in the oxytocin bubble, aren't yeah. they? So yeah. They're in the oxytocin, and they're all like, "Yes, it was brilliant. It was brilliant." And I mean, it's intrusive anyway, isn't it? Who wants a complete stranger coming in and asking you about what just happened? But it's overwhelmingly positive. But you speak to that same woman six months again in the community when she's out of the NHS care. Yeah. And she had a chance to reflect on her experience. I can tell you it's a complete different story. 100%. And, and let's face it, yeah, these women often did not know they had a fucking choice and they still don't know they've got a choice when they're in hospital with their babies. How many of them find out what choices they would have had when they go and have their second baby and they yeah. find out they want to have something different? So when you're asking them in a hospital be it their first, second, third babies, but they've still followed the same, you know, compliant NHS narrative. They never knew they had a choice. So when you speak to them, they may be saying, oh yes, I was given all my choices. Oh yes, all my options were talked through because you only know what you know, right? So if you didn't know you had yeah. a choice not to be induced, then you think all of your choices have been given to you. Asking women who've just had a baby, these things in a hospital setting while they're still there, while they don't know, I would much prefer that. Did anybody talk to you about the option? This is what I literally said this this morning to somebody. Have they talked to you about the chances of medically induced prematurity if they induce your small baby at 37 weeks? Have they talked to you about the risk? No, no, they never talk to women mm. about these things. And women don't know these things exist. So how can they say that they were given choices that they don't even know are there? I'm I so, think, yeah. and I want to say as well that all of this has been done against a backdrop and Becky's had the same bullying from other fucking birth workers as well yeah mm -hmm. so yeah we spoke about that in the last babies. podcast we're trying the, to the raise what's too. happening to them we're trying to talk about mm -hmm. them and women and birthing people yeah but there shouldn't be this constant fear on top of everything else that's going on that if you accidentally use the wrong fucking word somebody's going to try and annihilate you on social media for trying to help other people yeah. yeah, we we talked about that in our last podcast, didn't we, Sam? About the uh, toxicity. Sorry. I'm uh, on the rant. <laughs> the MVP, the MVP structure is not fit for purpose. No, and to not. be honest, I think the MVP structure is not fit for purpose because until maternity so are prepared to take the complaint structure out of maternity services so that what you said michelle about people complaining to their abusers until we have a completely independent complaint yeah. structure and it doesn't have to be a complaint even a completely independent feedback structure so the women yeah. don't have that fear that it's going to be but fed back to them. the but you've got them already in a lot of community organizations but they're never listened to are they they're never heard you know all people, all people um, don't even know they exist that's the thing they're not signposted to them a lot of time they don't. Um, what I was going to say to you, Sam, so when you was part of the MVP chairs and service user group, there's a new change now. There's something different. So before you was in that group, so it was still quite elite. You had to be part of an MVP to be part of this group that would discuss things that are happening in maternity services and things that are developments from NHS England. So it was quite transparent and we could all, you know, talk about our experiences, chairs or service users and what's happening across the country. Well, now NMV have now started their own group for MVP chairs only. Mm. So my understanding was that an MVP chair or a service user was no different. We're one yeah. and the same, basically. 
you are a service user, but you are, are being remunerated to hold the strings and coordinate the works of the committee. Yeah. Um, but we're all one of the same. So everybody in that original group is either been part of a committee, perhaps has been a chair, but has stepped down. So has got some valuable input to offer or valuable experiences to offer or perhaps might be a service user that might want to be a chair one day. So find these conversations very useful yeah. to help inform them about their work. Well, now NMV have, have opened a, another group just for MVP chairs to have private discussions. So now there's even another level of, um, you know, Covertly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, another they've removed even more trans. So from a group that wasn't very transparent, you know, basically we're we're all discussing a pub an NHS public funded service, but that was happening behind closed doors. Now yeah. there's another secret group that's these conversations are happening because MVP chairs are something different. They're you know, they're they're not service users, they're special. You know, what kind of crap is that? If the Welsh MVP chairs and the Scottish MVP chairs and the North of Ireland MVP chairs even know about it, because we're NHS England leads, right? Everywhere else follows. Mm. So those kinds well, of initiatives is, that come out in England affect the whole of the UK as well. They're not this little yeah. isolationist mm. pocket that only affect. Yeah. And yet the, the sort of provinces, if you like, are just laughed out of it completely. But then again, that said, I wouldn't want to be in a little MVP chair group, and I doubt you would either, Michelle. I know no, there are some really nice MVP chairs no, out there. But what I'm saying is where perhaps before we would challenge certain things and, you know, ask critical questions, we're critical thinkers in these groups, and perhaps other people might think, they don't really want that happening. They don't, you know, they don't want anybody challenging what they're doing. That's so they've it. kind of, and, and a lot of the new MVP chairs perhaps don't know the history of how NMV come about, you know, how they was self-appointed. They wasn't elected by the MVP chairs. They don't, MVP chairs don't realise that they don't have to subscribe to this committee. And even before, National Maternity Voices, it was chaired by Hannah Lyons all the time. And then we was, you know, like, how, how was she appointed? And then she said, oh, you know, there was this big thing, we're going to vote for a new chair, a new chair, we're going to vote for a new chair. Put your, put your, um, put your proposals in if you want to be, become chair. So people did. And then what happens is that we got a new MVP chair um, an NMV chair, but actually Hannah Lyons just moved up to director along with the original forming members of the committee. So they still make all the decisions about NMV on behalf of MVP chairs behind closed doors. And then you've got this other person that's down here, the MVP chair that doesn't really get a say in anything. Mm. And then that's the hierarchy, isn't it? It is, it's hierarchy. And that's what I don't like about it. You know, it, it it's wrong and this is where I think we're excluding people yeah because ultimately you know that those people up in the chain are going to make those decisions we, we had that locally but when I was um before the pandemic when I was at, I remember being at a few of the meetings and 
the the the, um, the representative from the CCG came in and she said, we've actually been given a, a pot of money to use, but we need to use it. it. Can't just sit there. We've got to find somewhere to put this money into. And so we were like, well, let's put it out into the Facebook group and, and ask, you know, the service users what they would like this money putting to, towards. And um, so they went through some kind of polling, you know, uh, questionnaire type thing. And it came back. And overwhelmingly came back to a fund, a breastfeeding cafe, which had the year before being shut down because it was underfunded. So you know, that, the, a baby cafe, that's NCT, you know that, don't you? Baby cafe. Yeah, yeah, but this was like to, to recreate that, a similar, similar okay. thing. Um, so that was what came back. That was there was more, you know, more um, support support for breastfeeding parents uh, was needed. So that came that came through, and we were like, yeah, actually, it does definitely needs it locally here. Um, and the 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 chair came forward and said, actually, um, we've decided to to fund a men, uh, perinatal mental health midwife. So <laughs> although that's great to have a perinatal mental health mid midwife. Um, it was almost like lip service that they had to ask and that they'd already decided that this money was going to go to this post, which sort of defeats the object of, of the whole thing, really. Um, I think that was the point where I was just like, we're never going to win with this, that they're always going to trump it at the last minute and do what they want with the funding and what, and what they want with the service. Do you know what something similar, similar happens in our region? So there was something like £36,000 or something allocated to address the inequalities. Um, and so they came to the MVP chairs and said, you know, how, what can you do to spend this money? Like we've got £36,000, what can you do? And I, at the time, piped up and said, well, to be honest, I'm like white and... Our MVP isn't really doing much at the moment. Why are you not going to all the local organisations, like the local charities that are due to, you know, probably going to close soon? And a lot of people in our community, those in the most deprived areas, are relying on these charities, you know, for, for living. Yeah. Why don't you go to those organisations and perhaps give some of that money to them in return to learn about how you can improve your services? Yeah, and that I'd said that you know because I think they wanted this money to be split between the MVP chairs to do a piece of work I wasn't best placed to do the work you know that's but that's that's how they think yeah so yeah because um, we have no idea I have no idea okay for example how to support the needs of families who've got visual impairment or deaf or women of colour, I can do my best, or black women or brown women, and I do do my best, and I get plenty of feedback, but I'm not the person to speak for them, for any of these groups. I yeah? know. Is that you well, get I mean, feedback, and you use that feedback to improve the way you're supporting people, and that, that's just common sense. That's, uh, you know, I always say to, to my mentees, they're like, oh, well, I don't know what to do in this situation. I was like, how have you asked your client what they need? And that, for me, is fundamental as, as a doula and any kind of support organisation. You have to ask because you can't just sit there and assume because you're not in the same boat as these people. You're, you know, our lives are, uh, are really simple and easy compared to a lot of people living on the breadline or, you know, dealing with racial inequalities and things. You know, our, our lives are completely different. 
So we need to be asking those groups of people, what actually is going to help you? What are the obstacles in your way that we can try and get rid of? And, you know, listen to that feedback and actually do something about it. Rather than sitting in our little castle saying, well, I think you need this, so I'm going to give you this. And then I am such, uh, you know, I'm so good because I've given you this and I've done my bit and ticked a box. But actually what you've given them hasn't really helped them because they haven't been listened to. I think, and I actually said, my my. if I was to say how the money could be spent, if you're not going to give it to an organisation, it would be to revamp our website and to make sure that everybody has got access to the same information so that they are not reliant upon the individuals they meet in their maternity experience in those short 10-minute appointments to you know deliver them unbiased information that is relevant to their own individual circumstances and plans for birth and accessible in different languages and available for those hard of you know with impaired and things like that yeah absolutely yeah even then i mean even as a doula like if you're working with somebody or if you're the mother of somebody or you're the sister of somebody or you're the friend and you're supporting somebody through their maternity experience because everybody really leans on somebody and if they're saying oh you know I'm not happy with my midwife or I don't know I'd like to see someone else shouldn't anybody be able to go bang 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 on the internet and find the relevant yes. person or what's what's available what services available oh you've just been told you've got gestational diabetes hold on let me have a look on your trust oh actually it says that it's got this gd pathway we've got three consultation teams you know one of them is specifically for gd you know this this is what's available to you in your trust so that everybody can access information no matter yes. who you are or who you're supporting so that it's not reliant upon the individuals that might choose to tell you something or choose not to. It's the guarding of information again. Instead, yeah. some trusts have a veil of secrecy, and we go back to that gate gatekeeping by the MVPs. So, I because I don't have time. I used to I used to message MVPs and ask myself, but I don't have time anymore. So now I'm having to say, you 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 message your MVP. I'll find it for you. Yeah. Give, send them the link and say but, uh, I may offer to speak what? for you but you don't have you don't have to accept that why are you signposting them to their MVP why don't you signpost them to the head of midwifery or the director yes, you can't get the fucking head of midwifery details but most of the trusts now the consultant midwife email address the head of mid bearing in mind I'm working all over the country so if this was local to me I could I could signpost you to the right people straight away. But when I've got somebody from Glasgow and I yeah. can't find quickly the the, yeah. the head of midwifery's details and, the, and you you can't get them. I've tried phoning wards and I oh it's very similar. I don't know if we can give you the head of midwifery details, yeah. right? But why? Why? <laughs> I, I agree with you. Yeah, we're we're, yeah. we're all singing from the same hymn sheet here. But you know, at least but what I have to do is forewarn them. So when they contact the MVP, they may well have to argue just to get it off the head off the MVP. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've got midwife friends, and I I would often message the odd one and say, "Oh, who's head of midwifery now? Do you have an email address? They'll give it to me, and they'll be like, "But don't tell anyone I gave it to you yeah, because they've been told to not give it out." 
it's wrong, isn't it? But at the same time, Sam and Becky, I mean, that's wrong. That information should be available to everyone. Yeah. But also, by signposting women to their MVP chairs, what you've also got to remember is most of the MVP chairs are perhaps um, people that have come to those roles with good intentions that might have had a baby within the past five years. They may have had no skills at all on counselling. They may so in in our trust, for instance, my Hom and Dom and everyone. They said, you know, we want we want you, Michelle, to kind of have really good social media. We want we want communication via social media. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not opening a Facebook page or an Instagram page because. All I will be getting is complaints about the service because you've closed so many of the services and people aren't allowed their tutors, people aren't allowed their partners. I work on this one day a week. I do not have time to man an email box full of people that are complaining. One, I don't have the skills to counsel them through that situation. And two, if I refer back into the system to try and say, I've got a woman who's about to go in tomorrow and she's really stressed, she's really worried, please, can I put you in contact? The trust don't ever come back to you anyway. So you're left mm. as the middleman hanging. So I refused yeah. to have a Facebook group, an Instagram group. I had an MVP um, email that, again, my email box was full of most of the people having negative experiences. Um, and I had to spend my day emailing, oh, please, can somebody respond to this email? Please, could you know, this woman have some support? Please, could you respond to this lady's email? She spent, like, probably ages writing her, you know, her whole life story out to us. Um, and I didn't want to leave people. And people had messaged you on social media, say, 11 o'clock at night or half 11. And you might, you might only be working one day a week. You might not be able to get back to them till five days later. It's not a full-time role. You know, it's a one day a week role. So that is another here. That's definitely what's it has become a place to for people to complain. And like you said, you know, you're only paid for maybe eight hours a month or something stupid, which is is not enough to do that. But if that information was public, then MVP chairs can be signposting and then they wouldn't need to be doing yeah. That's what I was pushing for. I was pushing for my trust to have a really good maternity services information page on there, on the website, um, or even have their own Facebook pages or their own Instagram pages that somebody who was paid in the role 24 hours to man, and I could signpost to that information. But again, you know, sometimes trust expects you to be answering, to be the communicator about what's happening in the service, yeah. um, as well as have the skills to put out the infographics. Now, not all MVP chairs have got the skills to no. do these MVP graphics, you know. So this is another thing. I mean, again, there's no accountability, there's no scrutiny, there's no equity across, and they're not really representative. So really what needs to happen, you know, reading between the lines of what you just said, is that there needs to be a really clear role on what that those chairs, uh, what their responsibility is. But to be able to support that role, there needs to be um, places for them to signpost people. So, you know, individuals, there needs to be information on who to contact in various situations. There needs to be information available publicly to be able to give to people. 
and and really they're there they, it is, a, I guess, a, a conduit of, of the, the feedback from service users, but they shouldn't be dealing with the shit. It should be a case of just handing it on, you know, like a hot potato, just pass it on to somebody else. Um, and I don't think it should be the only forums that NHS England are working with. I think there should be a stakeholder group. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But also, I, mean, I think the reason that the MVPs are, are, are almost targeted by people wanting to make complaints about the system is because people don't have another way of doing that, that, that is effective. So, you know, I mean, I've sent people to PALS and all sorts, but, we you know, we touched on it earlier on the podcast, is that nothing happens. And people know nothing happens and it's going to be wasted energy and wasted time. So if we had something in, in place, like Sam said, that's independent, a feedback system that we know is going to be dealt with and used to improve services, then people are going to be more likely to feed into that, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. But they're not Maybe. independent. They're They're not not so why why can't we have simple head off midwifery at Gloucester NHS Trust? Head off midwifery at Nottingham NHS Trust. Simple. Every head of midwifery has a bog standard email address. Then if people move posts, yeah, the emails are still going to the right person. Yeah. Consultant yeah. midwife at. You know, it's not hard. It's not hard to set up these structures, but because the trusts don't work together and because this goes back to that national accountability that I mentioned isn't there, and by national I mean UK-wide here, yeah? If we could have a structure that was easily accessible, but let's be honest, they don't want to be easily accessible. You yeah, know, they don't want. Communication but inside I trust has never believe... been good. It's, it's, not, it's never been good inside of trust. It's never been good between trust, and it's never been good between the, the trust and the public. But there's just I a lack of communication believe... there. But until women and people make an effort of a pain in the ass of themselves to senior, senior staff. So when people come to me in the home birth group, I tell them to get, all, the only signposting I do to the MVP is to get the head of midwifery email address, right? That's it. Because I firmly believe, and until they make a pain in the ass themselves enough at a high level, nothing will ever change. It's not until the seat, it's no point in complaining to your community midwife, because let's face it, she doesn't have any power usually. You need to take it to the top. And then when they get enough complaints, not even complaints, requests is the word I use, because I don't advocate anybody goes down the formal complaints route, to be honest, because it's onerous, it's re-traumatising, it's all about defending the NHS. This is about getting these women the best birth that they can have. And that means going straight to the top and going, my midwife is not supporting my birth choices. My consultant is not supporting my birth choices. I do not want to speak to X, Y, or Z again. Please give me somebody who will respect my informed decision-making and my informed choice. And also- so do you know what, Sam? What might be easier for you is to find out who the regional midwives are. That's because not a bad then, idea, actually. Because then you've, like, you've got the, the regional midwives and you can email them straight away and go, please can I have the email address for, or I'm trying to contact my home at this trust, please can you respond? And they'd have a duty. What the problem is, I think, sometimes at trust level is the same old story, that there isn't enough midwives to staff the service and everybody is overwhelmed trying to do the job and hasn't actually got the time to respond to emails i mean i used to email my home all the time with um people who were making complaints or wasn't really happy with their care and all i would get was i'm out of the office today or i'm on leave i'm on leave and i'm sure it was an auto response because she was too busy to respond to emails I so do find maybe the service 
the service users do tend to get quite a good if they go direct to the heads of midwifery they tend to get a good service no none of the doulas would but the service <laughs> users do and also they're less likely to be coerced in writing so nobody in writing at a senior staff level will say to a woman you are not allowed to have a home birth they will not put that in writing so it changes the dynamic because they are actually being held accountable for what they are doing in writing. And actually, in my free birth course yesterday, I recorded a story of somebody who actually successfully sued the NHS for inducing her for preeclampsia. It's in there if you want to join my course. But um, if, if we're inducing her for preeclampsia, when they hadn't bothered to wait for her test results and she didn't have preeclampsia. I finally found someone who successfully sued the NHS for an inappropriate induction. I'm like, yes, wow. next, time, next time she free birthed because she never wanted to go back into that environment again. Yeah. You know, they need to be accountable. You know, the growth of free birth is not just because of COVID. Yeah. It is because the amount of traumatization and barbaric brutalization that is happening in the birth room through induction mostly. Yeah. yeah. And this yeah. all feeds the picture. I was thrilled to find someone who finally beat the NHS on that one. Because that's the only thing they're going to ever listen to. When they stop being sued well, for... The NHS has um, just collapsed. It's, it's, we've got to get in the pockets of the people that... When um, they stop being sued be for, for unwell babies and maternal death and stillbirth, and they start being sued for abusing people's human rights, that's when they're going to sit up and listen. Mm. Sorry. I think I'll probably end on that note. <laughs> yeah. But I think, Sam, you should get a list of the regional midwives because yeah. their emails That's are probably really easy to find. And just sign women straight to signpost women straight to them because they've probably yeah. got more time. Well, they won't tell you they've got more time, but they're not actually on the ground practicing, are they? They're, you know. So and you know, I the other thing that. I want to know, it would give them a better understanding of what's happening. Because sometimes I think, because they, they're a bit like the LSA, I think, you know, like yeah. the local supervising authority of midwifery. Yeah, I love to run All the trusts, of all the trusts. So they're the regional, so they've got the overview of all the trusts. So it might be really good for them to be getting an insight of what's happening at individual trusts. I loved it when we had them in place in Wales. They oh, were yeah. They were, they were employed by, so what happens here, when we had supervisors and midwives in Wales, it was unique, yeah? They didn't work for the trust, they got seconded out, so they worked for Health Inspectorate Wales, so they lost that loyalty link to the individual trusts, and we had a 24-7 yeah. number, and they would be on a rotor, so you could get a supervisor midwives anywhere in Wales, but that meant that they were able to act completely, in, it was much better. It was much better. Much better. So if you were at a birth and you had a midwife who was coercive and not listening, and I did it two or three times, you could pick up your phone 24-7 and dial the supervisor of midwives who's not employed by the trust because she's seconded out, yeah? Get a midwife anywhere in the country who would actually deal with the issue there and then and on the spot. It worked beautifully, and then they stripped them away and took them. And what we got yeah, instead absolutely. was was PMAs and consulting midwives who are not there for service users. They are not there. They, you know, I had a row with one of our heads of midwifery about this and she said, and, and, and she actually came and she deleted it all because that's what happened. She actually said the service, now bear in mind, we're talking about women unhappy with their birth, in the middle of giving birth, yeah? 
oh, well, um, they could film the hospital switchboards and make a complaint that way. And have you ever had much luck getting through? Oh, and they could ask for the on-call senior member of midwifery, the on-call one. And I'm like, really? You want them to film the switchboard in the middle of their birth? You know, because I've been at a birth where it was, can we have a more senior midwife? I am the senior midwife. Well, who's above you? No one. Like, well, we all know there's someone above you, but it's 10 o'clock in the night, so there's actually nobody in the hospital, is what you mean. And you're being as coercive as fuck. on my language on this podcast today. But they don't <laughs> care. They don't care about women. They don't care about the birth experience. They don't see the link between maternal mental health. Yeah, and I'm going to go further with my theory that I don't think postnatal depression exists either, right? So I think postnatal depression is mostly birth trauma, right? reactional type of depression because of birth trauma or other trauma that comes through in the birth room. So if we fix the trauma, we would see postnatal depression rates absolutely plummet. Instead, what we're seeing is them going through the roof because of the amount of trauma happening in the birth room. And we are all well, as birth workers. You know, you get women that have perhaps been previously sexually abused that are not yeah. really aware of, chose to black it out, and then it comes alive again in the birth room because they've effectively been abused again. Yes, because the current practice of routine vaginal examination, strapping you on your back and putting you on a monitor and being stuck away from your partner for days and weeks at a time is abusive. Absolutely. Even if it's done with the best of intentions and even if it's done with kindness as much as it can be, 11 to 14 days away from your partner is abusive. Assuming you have a partner, obviously, they're a woman giving birth without a partner, but that's not who we're talking about right now in this second. It's, it's abusive to lock women away from their support networks. Going back to what we said at the start, we could go on for hours, couldn't we, about this? <laughs> no, I think we I'll, have. With that in mind, I'm going to draw the podcast to a close. <laughs> I just obviously really. want to point out that there are MVPs that are functioning really, really well around the, uh, around the country. Yes, there are. There's not many, to be fair. <laughs> But there are some that are fantastic. There are some where the trusts are listening to the service users. There are some where doulas are involved and it, and it works great. But equally, there are a lot that are really not fit for purpose at the moment, which is what sort of stemmed at this podcast episode today. Michelle, before we go, have you got anything you want to say before we say ta-ta for now? No, not that I can think of. I think I've said <laughs> enough. What I would like to say is there are lots of service users, okay, that want that have their maternity experience and want to feedback in some way and don't really know how to, or they feel so. Um, you know, birth is such a transformative experience, be it negative or positive you know yeah. and that leads most women and birthing people to want to get involved in some way in improving birth yeah and unfortunately most people the only places they know about or hear about is the MVP so that's the first place they go so every service user goes to MVPs with good intentions you know with yeah. a want to help improve the chairs are there with good intentions to want to help improve the service, you know? Um, and many of them are doing their absolute best, yeah. but are they being listened to? Are they really able to affect change? I don't really know. 
I'm not 100% convinced. The jury's you know, after my, the jury's out. Yeah, the jury's out. But it's not to say that those individuals and those who are trying to represent service users, there are some fantastic people with, mm. you know, nothing but good intentions. So good luck to those people. But also there's lots of other organisations in the birth world that you can also give your energies to. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, we're all here to support people, you know, having babies and having a positive experience. That's, that's why we do what we do. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure as usual, Michelle. It's really lovely to see your face and hear your voice again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lovely to see you too as well. Really lovely. Been a lovely afternoon. <laughs> it has, hasn't it? Sam, any last words of wisdom, my lovely? Mm, well, as I said to somebody the other day when we were discussing the smacking ban in Wales, right? without service provision to actually help parents not smack. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And good intentions are just not enough. We, we are all, there are lots of us doing as much as we can to raise our voices. Michelle is very active in the birth world. Mm -hmm. Becky is, I am. We are doing as much as we can, but there are plenty of people who aren't as well. So start, start using your voices to speak up for those giving birth. Sorry, there is a lot of people that are complicit in what's happening, you know, yeah. that, are, that are part of the, And that's sometimes what I find that service users join in, like NHS working groups to want to make change, but then kind of morphing into the system. Yeah. You yes. know, I don't think is good because they're not doing the best by service users. You've got to remember that you come there to make a difference yeah. for the women and birthing people that come after you so yeah. rem remember why you're there and stay true to that you know we're not there to be friends with the head you know and to morph into the system and be part of the problem we're there to make a change we're there to to you know to 100 percent yeah. And the other thing I want to say, if there is anybody who's got to the end of this podcast, I think <laughs> Becky might have to split it in two. I'm sure they will. Right? It is not selfish to want the best birth experience for you and your baby. It is not selfish to be advocating for yourself and your baby because if you have a positive birth experience, and that is whether it is vaginal, cesarean, or however it happens, a positive birth experience sets you and your baby up for the rest of your lives and will mean that you cost the NHS less money in the long run, right? Yeah. This idea that it is selfish to want the best at the start is absolutely and fundamentally flawed. The basic things that keep a baby well and healthy, okay, and set them off to a good start in life, yet we're gonna look at breastfeeding, but also if you're not breastfeeding, skin to skin, close contact with the parents, even the poorliest of babies benefit from being with the birthing parent mother or their other parent, right? It's not selfish to want those things. It's beneficial to everybody, including the NHS. 100%. Then I'm going right. to finish. <laughs> Is that, are you finished now? <laughs> no, I'm finished. Well, I'll <laughs> never be finished. Say one more thing. Oh, Listen to you, Sam. You know, I think about compromise that, you know, as we think, oh, we must compromise a bit. We should never compromise. But also as service users, if you're trying to make change within the system, don't compromise on the outcome that you want to achieve. Yeah. Don't kind of think, oh, well, I'm not going to be able to achieve this in the NHS or within the NMVP. So I'll compromise and settle for what they want as well. No, don't, don't compromise. 
Yeah. Stick Very to nice. your gun and aim for what you originally wanted. Yeah, absolutely. Because no one got anywhere by compromising. <laughs> and, okay. and that really is. <laughs> we could just keep going because well, I'm just getting more and more frustrated when we talk. But, uh, I, I'm going to obviously say goodbye to you both in a minute. But before we do, I will going to put an explicit warning on this episode for the swearing. And because Sam has been swearing so much, it means I can say fuck, piss and crap. And that's fine. <laughs> um, and uh, I can uh, quote the lovely Paula Cleary and say her, her classic line of shit in a cup which has been a, a great um, a great amusement to me uh, in the uh, March of Midwife steering group. Okay. <laughs> Can I just say, do spit a swearing then. Go to all the chairs and service users out there, don't let the fuckers grind you down. <laughs> Absolutely. Woo-hoo! You see, Sam set the tone, and now we can all just swear however the fuck I don't even swear. I don't even <laughs> keep saying to me all the time, since the pandemic, Mum, you swear. I'm like, I'm so, like that at my laptop all the time. It's the anger, it's the rage, isn't it? And we're all full of that. You know, not just the pandemic, just all the crap going on at the minute. It's just ridiculous. Right, so I'm going to stop the podcast there. No more talking or I'm just going to stop recording and boot you both out. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, all seriousness, thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us today. And, and obviously lovely to see you as well, Sam. Um, as usual and um, goodbye to all our lovely listeners and see you all again on the next podcast bye thank you for listening to the birth activists podcast until next time